I'm Yvette Benavides, and this is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. We continue our short series this week on the stories of Juan Rulfo. By the time he was 10 years old, Juan Rulfo had lost both of his parents. He had little exposure to books while living with his grandmother, but after her death, Surprisingly, it was the orphanage that afforded him access to books and even to access to enrolling in university. Financial pressures, but also boredom, led to his terminating his formal education after two years. He married, and he and his wife had four children. Rulfo always maintained a day job and referred to writing as a pastime. This even after he was awarded the National Literary Prize, Mexico's highest literary honor in the year 1970. Tales of the Mexican Revolution had already captured the imaginations of readers in and around Mexico. Rulfo offered something new by writing stories set in the stark rural landscapes of Mexico, the harsh, arid environment, and the violent lives of poor inhabitants populate the stories in Eliano Enyamas, his celebrated short story collection published in 1953. Es que somos muy pobres, translated to It's Because We're So Poor, is one of the stories from this collection. Here we find a family of four living on a farm. They are very poor, so poor that their only resource is the crop of barley that is now ruined by the curtains of rain and the rising river that floods the land. A calf was to be the dowry offered to marry off Tacha, the young daughter who has just turned 12. Her parents fear that if they don't marry her off, she will become a woman of ill repute, as did her two older sisters, now long gone and banished from the house. The narrator here is Tacha's brother, who reveals the story that asks many questions for which the final answer seems to be... It's because we are so poor. He reveals the devastating news that the cow is gone, floated away in the filthy floodwaters. And what can we make of a story that depicts the sorrows of this family, one that has pinned all their hopes for the future on marrying off Tacha and her dowry of that cow? What can readers learn about from a story like this one set in the desolate, inhospitable landscape where miraculous rain becomes a punishing downpour and a flood that devastates the family's livelihood? Rulfo's characters in the stories throughout this collection endure. They don't turn corners to enlightenment. They don't rise up against the corruption and violence that is a fact of life in their small villages and towns. They don't break barriers or bound over obstacles to tidy, hopeful endings. But they endure. In his essay, Winter in September, Peter Orner ruminates on The First Day of Winter by Brees DJ Pancake. Another story, another family, this one in West Virginia, another farm, and another ruined crop from fields soon left to fallow. He writes that what's beautiful and wrenching is that there is no resolution, and you don't come to a story like this for answers. Think of it as you might an old trusted friend, the sort of friend who offers no glib false sense of hope, just a quiet fortitude. 
The same can be said of Juan Rulfo's story. We see the family's quiet fortitude in the face of the worst thing that's happened to them, the terrible event that has sealed the fate of young Tacha, and the beautiful and wrenching aspects of that bring us back to this story again and again. On this episode of The Lonely Voice, Peter Orner and I discuss Juan Rulfo's It's Because We're So Poor. So doesn't the first line of this story sound like the first line of a lot of our personal emails <laughs> to people <laughs> in 2020? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything's going from bad to worse here. <laughs> <laughs> no context needed. Nothing else needs to be said. Everything's no. going from bad to worse. And like, who's this narrator talking to? You know, everything's going. You know, like it's it's. There's a certain, like you said, almost like an email, like it, the intimacy of it. Mm-hmm. Like talking directly, directly to you. There, everything's gone going from bad to worse here. You know, and it's just like we're right in. We're right. We don't know who this is. We don't know anything, but we're in it. So the litany. Last week, my aunt Jacinta died. And on Saturday, after we had buried her and the sadness had begun to fade away, it started raining like crazy. This upset my father since the entire barley harvest was drying in the rickyard. The downpour started suddenly in great waves of water, giving us no time to stow even a handful. And it just goes on, this, this short litany of problems. This upset my father since the entire barley harvest was drying in the rickyard. It's just such a, I mean, you know, and, and it's hard to talk about translation because that's a, that's a whole other, I'd have to be up for being able to do that, and I can't. But the, I, I just love the clarity of this opening, you know, and the voice is totally established who's talking. And, you know, apparently it's a younger kid. Right. I think the problem with the other translation, I would say, is the narrator, is the translator thought the kid was younger, or like made, like went out of his way to make it sound like a young kid. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the newer translation, the Stavins, doesn't do that. He's just he is a kid, but it's not. It doesn't feel like gone out of its way to make him a kid. And then, yeah, the kicker. And just yesterday, my sister. Sacha's 12th birthday, we found out that the cow my father had given her for her saint's day had been swept down the river. From bad to worse. <laughs> right. And then this beautiful description of, you know, the, the you know, the, that slow motion catastrophe that a flood is. The river started to rise three nights ago around dawn. Though I was sound asleep, the thunderous noise woke me up. I jumped up up to my feet with the cover still in my hand, as though I thought the roof of my house was ca- caving in. Then I fell asleep again because I realized it was only the sound of the river and because the sound lulled me to sleep. That's such a, um, it's just a, again, not to be, uh, not to be um, uh, hyperbolic, but it's, if you're going to describe a flood, that's the way to go. Like, like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a threat. How, how can this hurt us? Yeah. Just the river. I realized it was only the sound of the river and because of the sound lonely. It's like, it's just a fact of their life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, once 
in a while, it's deadly, but for the most part, it isn't, right? And so why would, why would, okay, so it's raining a lot, right? But that's how it goes, right? I mean, suddenly it, 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 you reach a point where it goes from it's raining a lot to it being a, you know, an incredible disaster. You know, I haven't really studied the scholarship around these stories very much. Um, Good. I ju- and I just haven't had to, and and I haven't had the desire to. I know the basic things about the revolution and 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 the rest, but the the idea about the government forgetting the poor, the government denying the poor of every basic thing. It's in all the stories by Rulfo, in one way or another. And you don't even have to really know that little thread of context and know, you know, know the, the decade he was reflecting on in the 1920s. It's just the idea of the river for me here is, you know, it's this natural thing. And you think about, like, the natural disasters um, that we hear about or experience, hear about on the news or experience more closely. It's almost like this idea of, this is why sometimes I, I feel like I don't need to know the context. I just need to need the story because the story is so often enough that if there's this subtext or if there's this other idea here about the failures of the government, there's still this raging river in the immediate. And it's you know, this is a conversation uh, I have with myself a lot, <laughs> and also sometimes with colleagues, how to talk about stories without overburdening them with context. I mean, they wouldn't be as powerful if they were if they needed the context, if they needed an external context. It's not to say it's not helpful and interesting, and and going back to read about the revolution and sort of the you know, the, the, the Mexico that Rufo was born into and grew up in, you know, this incredible place of upheaval that went from one system to an entirely different one was what he grew into, grew up into. So it makes sense, but I think he, he somehow was able almost to write, not without the context, but try his best, again, as an artist in Mexico City, mostly, right, and other places that he bounced around. But he wasn't, my sense is, from my limited understanding, is that he wasn't necessarily writing these stories when he was among the people that grew up among them, but then he left, is how I, is how I understand it. You know, I, I think he was making thunderous political points only by telling the stories of these people as, as, as elementally as he, as he could. I think it was Sontag in, in the introduction who said that um, he wrote about it from the tangents. You know, he wrote about it from the corners of it. He lived through it. You can't divorce him from that context, right? But you don't need to know it to get something out of the story. No, no. And and it's, I think you, I think it is the story. There's something uncomfortable about even the title of this story to talk about from my house and 2020, you know, mm-hmm. 
I'm, I'm worried that my kids are home because of COVID stuff and uh, how how the hell am I going to get any work done today, you know? <laughs> and then I'm reading the stories, because we're so poor, it's hard to read that title as apolitical. It's not. But then when you enter the first line, you know, even even the, the, the sort of ginned-upness, arguably, of the title falls away and you're in this boy's voice talking about what his sister has lost in the flood, her cow, her cow. Yeah, because any time you come to the point of incredulity, like, how can that matter? Like, how would you get from point A to point Z? How can you imagine that this will be the fate of your sister? And the answer is, es que somos muy pobres. The answer is, it's because we're so poor. The answer to any... Anytime you hit a wall with this story and you're just not understanding, where, what's the problem? Why is this a problem? Why does this seal the family's fate? Oh, it's because we're so poor. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an unusual title, but it's also an answer. I try and think of other writers that have t- titled stories in a similar way, and I cannot think of one. You know, usually there's like sort of a, you know, a little bit of an ironic ring when you have a story that sort of seems explainy, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know, where is this voice coming from? That's the closest one I can think of, a wealthy story uh, about um, about the, the shooting of, of Medgar Evers in, in Jackson, Mississippi, her hometown, and she wrote that story in a fiery rage the night that it happened, and that she called the title... You know, where's this voice coming from? And I think that it, it's a question. This is not a question. This is an answer. Mm-hmm. And there, there's something, I mean, there's something guidey about both titles, but this, this one is even more so. Like, like you say, it is the answer. And yet, what are we supposed to do with that as a reader? You know, it, it, it sort of sets you on your heels before you even start the story. You know, and I think that's that's just incredibly unusual, but shows what kind of, artists we're dealing with. I understand the need some people have to study the life of the writer and try to find the clues that way. I mean, Rulfo, Rulfo lost his father. I think Rulfo was six, and I, th- I think the father died violently, and then his mother died of a heart attack. He was maybe 10 years old. Right. And then he yeah. ended up in an orphanage, and and the violence of that time, too. I mean, the, the poverty and the violence. Like, yes, this is something that was a big part of, of Rulfo's life. And then, as he's further away from the situation and in a, in a different city and doing different things, very different things, he's hearkening back to this rural setting and, you know, the natural landscape and the natural devastation and really like just the, um, the desolation of these people who, who really don't have a porvenir or don't, ha- don't feel like they have much of a future uh, because they're so poor. And that's so basic. You know, I, know. I, I, think, <laughs> I wonder, you know, he was a strange figure and I, I can understand why people want to know more about him. I certainly do. And I you know, checked out the one book that Dartmouth College Library had about him. 
uh, and there's pages ripped out hmm. of the book. You know, because I think people, you know, are just so hungry for like some Rufo like context, like you said, like they and literally the story we talked about last time. Um, you don't hear the dogs barking. Kind of lame critical analysis that is in this book is ripped out. It's gone. Wow. <laughs> so I'm just saying that there is this sort of hunger when you have a, a a writer who's a little bit mysterious because of the little that he wrote. You know, we just kind of want to know what he was up to. But I think what he was up to is all is is like like you started this conversation it's in the story itself, and in this story, it's actually a lot of it's in the title. And then you got to read the story, you know, to know that. It's because we're so poor. You know, you say to somebody, hey, read the story. What's it called? It's because we're so poor. Okay, open it up. Everything's going from bad to worse here. <laughs> like, right. And, and yeah, that's right. It is so basic. And, and that's important. And, and the stories are unremittingly dark in some ways. Not in every way. I mean, I think even in this story, you have a love between a brother and a sister. That love, as in some of his other stories, can get twisted, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I believe there's a there's a beauty in at least his how devastated this boy is for what his sister has lost. I, I did want to say I did look up some other stuff about Rufo. And I got a little deeper this time. And there's one thing I thought I would read. Um, this is from some interview. Uh, he says, uh, Rolfo has said that during childhood, this is from uh, uh, the Hispanic Journal from 1991. Rolfo has said that during his childhood, he spent a great deal of time reading because people did not leave their homes for fear of getting shot. He states, it was rare if we didn't see one of our own people hung by the feet on some post on whatever road. They stayed there until they became old and then curled up like untanned leather. The vultures would eat their insides, leaving only a shell. And since they hung them very high, they would sway in the breeze many days, sometimes months sometimes only the tatters of their pants billowing out of the wind as if someone had put them out to dry there. So that's Rufo's childhood memory. Now, again, he's a storyteller. <laughs> like, <laughs> do we entirely believe him? Of course I believe him, and we certainly knew this stuff went on mm-hmm. in Mexico as it went on other places, as it goes on other places. Um but that's the that's where he's coming from as a child. Hmm. So how can we say to him, well, Rufo, you know, your stories are so dark and now you're writing about kids and those stories are dark too. My god, this is really dark. The idea of the um of the morning sky in that very next paragraph, the general symbol of promise, a new day. The morning mm-hmm. sky was full of huge clouds and everything looked as if it had been raining nonstop. So we do, we know it's it's just a continuation. Uh, it's not a bright spot. The noise from the river was louder than ever and had drawn closer. So this this has gone on overnight and we're still in it. Right. And people who've lived through cataclysmic floods know this. 
you just kind of hope that it's not going to hit that certain level. And then there's this weird line. We talked about this before. You could smell it the way you can smell a fire, the rotten smell of roiling water. You know, and, and think about how, like, a flood would smell. Because it's unusual. Like, the water is all churned up, and there's things in it that shouldn't be. And mm-hmm. So it, it does smell different. Like, Rufo is really focusing on the physicality of um, this this really intense, slow-moving threat. Yeah, because a flood is not just water, ever. It's always going to be filthy and cluttered with things that shouldn't be there. Right, right. By the time I went outside, the river had already spilled over its banks and was slowly approaching the main street. It was quickly making its way into the house of the woman people call La Tambora. I I really wanted to know more about her just because that's what they called her. So, um, but it's enough. It's enough. It's it's just, you know, another person in this scene, um, part of the, the life and culture of this place. And um, it doesn't matter. I mean, tambora, tambora has the sense of a drum, a, like a oh. big bass drum. And it can also mean tub, hmm. which I found interesting. But we're not going to go, we're not going to talk about it. Well, uh, but I think it's worth, it's worth, asking why La Tambora appears and disappears in three sentences yeah. in a story that's only four pages long. Why are we? Why do we detour into looking at the house of the woman called, uh, people call La Tambora, when her house is flooding, when everyone else's houses are flooding too? <laughs> like what? Like there isn't any reasonable kind of story reason to have her there. And and all I'd say is, I've been thinking about this. I I think a lot of Rufo's stories, and this one is a really good example, are stories told by people who don't tell stories, or 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 don't tell stories in the way that you know. There's a point A to point B to point C. That there, you know, he is this boy is recounting the flood and he's just thinking what he what images come into his mind about it mm-hmm. as he gradually moves into what the story's what what his main preoccupation about the flood is but but he's he's not just setting the scene here he's remembering it in and remembering it in real time and then like and then la tambora's house and then and then there's that tree which is in the next line the tamarind trees that had been in uh, Aunt uh, Yasita's rickyard. And we already know what happened to her. The aunt has died, and her tamarind tree is gone now, too. It was the only one in town, and that's why people think this is the highest the river crest has crested in years. So, so La Tambora's house, the aunt's house, the tree, like, it's all, like, it's very intimate, mm-hmm. you know, and we're we're in his very small world this kid you know yeah i i like that idea of the small world and like it's his retelling he's not worried about you know the narrative arc or the structure or whatever um he's you know just retelling 
the story. Y luego, la tambora en la casa de la tambora. You know, you can just imagine it. And it's so, there's something so earnest about it, too. And, um, and honest, somehow. It's just, yeah, I like this idea that you mentioned, the small, his own small world. That's, this is what he's retelling. This is what he has. There's more to it than just uh, the flood and and the family and uh, I, I just like I like the inclusion of of La Tambora. <laughs> <laughs> and and then because I want to get back to there, there's another moment in the story where I think is a really good example of what you just described, um, uh, where he asks the. The, the, uh, an eyewitness to the cow's demise <laughs> to tell him what happened. And then he recounts that, but he does, it's not like he sets the scene or anything. You know, but but, let's, but before we get there, I think we have to talk about what happens to the cow <laughs> and what they're doing. And, and the, the kids, the two, the, the brother and the sister at this point, um, he's, he talks about La, La Tambora, he talks about the tree, and then they go to the ravine to look my sister and I went back in the afternoon to see the cascade of water steadily growing thicker and darker and already beyond the level where the bridge is supposed to be. We stayed there for hours and hours without getting bored with the whole thing. Isn't that fascinating? We stayed there for hours and hours without getting bored with the whole thing. It sounds so colloquial, so ordinary, so, you know, kind of how it easily would have been said today. Later on, we climbed up the ravine because we wanted to hear what people were saying, since down there near the river, it's so loud, you, you can only see mouths opening and closing as if they want to say something, but you can't hear a word. So we climbed up the ravine where people were looking at the river and talking about the damage it had done. That's where we found out that the river had carried away La Serpentina, my sister Tatcha's cow, because my father gave my sister the cow as a birthday present, and it had one white ear and one red one and very beautiful eyes. What do you make of that section about people who look like their mouths are opening and closing but you can't <laughs> hear a word? It's just so great. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, they're plain, really. And they're, you know, but he, he, it takes so much uh, eye to see yeah. that. To see so, so it's, you know, I see it. I see the scene. I see all these people. He just gives us those people and their mouths opening. Yeah, the whole rest of the world is deaf to them. I mean, they they don't have a voice, number one. But I also like that he repeats in a very kind of non-writerly, non-revision way <laughs> that right. he repeats that the father gave the sister the cow for the birthday. Like we just saw that on the facing page. And right. he says it again because that's what people do. That's what people do. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the repetition, there's actually literally repeated sentences in this story. The same sentence a few time, a few sentences later in the same paragraph. Mm-hmm. You know, because exactly, that's, what, that's how people who, who, you know, who tell, I mean, they, people tell stories this way, not, not because there's any agenda or anything. Mm-hmm. And this poor cow, so... <laughs> He decides. La Serpentina? Does that have it? What is Lapa Serpentina? Serpentina? It, it's like like serpentine, you know, like circuitous, like a serpent, like, a, you know, like coiling and 
zigzaggy serpentine. Isn't that a funny name for a cow? Very funny. <laughs> yes. but, but I, it's not what I think of when I think of a cow. But, so, but then so. I, I imagine that a cow named La Serpentina is going to be a wayward <laughs> cow that goes where she shouldn't go, you know? So, yeah. yeah. But uh, that's, a, that's a little too tidy. But the idea from the speaker is that she decided to cross that river when she knew quite well it wasn't the same river. Right, because La Serpentina wasn't that dumb to let herself be killed like she must have been sleepwalking. To let herself be killed like that, she must have been sleepwalking, he says. The thing about this section where he's deliberating about she must have been asleep. You know, I've caught her that way before, and I've had to wake her up. It's such a search for meaning, for an answer in that one little section and it's really just to himself and, and it's so the intimacy that he has mm-hmm. remember it's his sister's cow but he seems to take care of it most of the time it was up to me to wake her when i opened the corral door to let her out if not she must have she must she might have spent the entire day there with her eyes closed very still and sighing the way cows sigh when they're asleep i mean this cow is also a character Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think, now that we're talking about it, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are great stories about cows, you know, with personalities, but La Serpentina's got to be up there. <laughs> you know? she, unless, if he didn't come let her out, she might have spent the entire day in there with her eyes closed, <laughs> very still and sighing. And just the idea of them not knowing if, um, let's see, where is it? We don't know if the calf is alive or if he followed his mother down the river. But this, I just skipped over the part where he asks the man. I, let me... Um, yeah, I mean, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading that. Yo le pregunté a un señor que vio cuando la arrastraba el río si no había visto también al becerrito que andaba con ella. Pero el hombre dijo que no sabía si lo había visto. Solo dijo que la vaca manchada pasó patas arriba, muy cerquita de donde él estaba, y que allí dio una voltreta, y luego no volvió a ver ni los cuernos, ni las patas, ni ninguna señal de vaca. Por el río rodaban muchos troncos de árboles con todo y raíces, y él estaba muy ocupado en sacar leña de modo que no podía fijarse si eran animales o troncos los que arrastraba. I asked a man who saw the cow being dragged downstream if he hadn't seen the calf that was with her. But the man said he didn't know if he had seen that. All he said was that the spotted cow went by with her legs in the, there, in the air very close to where he was. And then she flipped over and he couldn't see the horns of the legs or any sign of the cow at all. There were plenty of tree trunks floating on the river with their roots and all, and he was very busy trying to gather firewood so he wasn't able to see if it was animals or tree trunks being carried away. So you have a guy who's, he, he goes to, the sor- to an eyewitness to the cows drowning and tells us this incredible image 
the guy tells him, and he just reports it to us. The, the guy tells him he saw the cow with the legs up, and then and look, I didn't have a chance to really talk, think about the see the calf because I was too busy. There was firewood coming down the river, and I needed to grab that, right? Hmm. And so, um, and there you, there you have it. How how would you how do you see the translation? Oh, it's uh, it's quite literal. It's word for word, and it captures the kind of almost flatness of it. Like hmm. this could be really dramatic. Yeah. And it's not. It's just, you know, it's dramatic enough by oh, being flat. Exactly. You know, because you, you see the cow with the legs up in the air. I mean, talk about an image, right? But, oh, there was, you mean the calf? Oh, I didn't see any calf. I was too busy getting the firewood. Like, Rufo knows that people aren't sightseeing out there, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's no time for that. And so if, 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 if something valuable is floating down the river, Rufo knows that they're going to be focused on that. Yeah. His story be damned, right? But the very next, the transition is the problem at home. Right. And there we go. And then the story goes in places where, you know, even though I, I was still surprised and unsettled and even a little shocked again where the story goes. Yeah. Because we know the, the value of, uh, you know, of, of livestock, of a cow for, for milk, say, right? Right. But this is a much bigger problem because we are poor. Um, right. So the problem at home is what is going to happen now that my sister Thacha is left with nothing. And if some if somebody says, "What do you mean nothing? What do you mean?" It's because we're poor. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like this logic that is maybe hard for us to understand. But this is his, as you said, this is his small world. This is what he understands. Right, but it takes this uh, kind of intense turn, still in the voice of this boy. But I feel like the story, uh, you know, goes from sort of strangling me to like, you know, I don't know, stabbing me in the gut or whatever, like yeah. a slow strangle to like, <laughs> you know, do you want to read the rest of that paragraph? Yes, Tacha is left with nothing. It took a lot for my father to get La Serpentina in the first place from the time she was a calf. So my sister could have a bit of capital and wouldn't run away to become a whore the way my two older sisters had. <laughs> what? It's like at the back end of the sentence. You know, it, it ends the paragraph. It's like, it's like, oh. <laughs> you know, and the, the, the only thing, you know, this is maybe cutting too much to the chase, but, you know, it, it, the only thing preventing... This story is largely about the only thing that was preventing this little kid. I mean, it's heartbreaking, harsh, harsh story suddenly. You know, that, 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 that this boy believes that the only thing that's preventing his, his sister from running off and becoming a whore like his two other sisters is this dead cow. Mm -hmm. And, oh, wait, wait, if we have the calf, there might be some hope. But aside from that, 
if she doesn't have this cow as a dowry, nobody's going to marry her, and there's no hope for her. Yeah. The way my father tells it, they both took the wrong road because our family was so poor, and they were right. incorrigible. Right. Um, there's the title. Yeah. And that explains why they became, why they ran off, you know, to do what they did. Why? Again. Just within the home structure, the home life, you know, they weren't doing their chores. They, it just seemed like they seized opportunities to do these things, um, you know, rather than fetch water from the river, this, the river that is now raging. And so the, fa- the father throws them out. Uh, he couldn't take it anymore. He showed them the door and, he, and then says, they left for Ayutla or I don't know where. And now they are whores. That's right. why my father is terrified. Thatcha will end up like her two sisters. Right. right. Her two and, sisters. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, the story is, t- it's a tiny little story, but it hinges on this, uh, for me, it hinges on that paragraph where, you know, where in the kind of logic of this young boy, you know, there is no, there is no hope now that that the uh that the cow is gone, there's really no hope for his sister, yeah, and all he can do at the end is hug her, and she's crying because she believes it too they both they all they both believe it, yes, you know and it's it's you know yeah it's I almost feel we had this problem last time, like how do you talk about Rufo without just saying like look you gotta you got to just read this, you know what I mean? Because otherwise it feels like we're wrecking it somehow, you know? There surely would have been someone with the spunk to marry her if only to have that very beautiful cow as well. And then... <laughs> with the beautiful eyes. With the beautiful eyes. That adjective. Yeah. Our only yeah. hope is that the calf may still be alive. Right. Our only hope. The um, the mother of this narrator. There's this whole section about her. My mother doesn't know why God has punished her by giving her such daughters, since in her family, from her grandmother on, there have never been any bad people. That sounds like something the mother has said. You yeah. know that the mother has claimed this never happened before. <laughs> Everybody was raised with the fear of God. They were very obedient and didn't offend anyone. Right. Okay. <laughs> Part of this is test to times have changed, and people like the mother can't handle it. It does remind me a little bit in the section of Ignacio in the story we talked about last week mm-hmm. about um, how our, our you know our children are our children. And there are some things that we can't change or control. But the idea of morality here, uh, you know, coming from the mother, of course, you know, I I sort of take that little bit with um, a grain of salt. You know, this judgment from her, uh, she's so God-fearing and she's claiming that nobody's ever done anything terrible before this except for these two, you know, terrible daughters and may God help them. Um, And... The, the thing is that Tacha, who is 12, and they are, 
they are face to face. They are confronted with this idea of her 12th birthday, about to move into her teen years. And she's developing and, and all the rest. And they're thinking about the calf and the dowry. And um, this is what is at the fore of, of their mind. So this extremely dangerous and damaging flood that seems to have devastated even the tamarind tree, which was like the last outpost of, you know, of something to be salvaged, of something that could survive. Um, everything's gone because the cow is gone. Right. And I think what is so wrenching about this story is that the parents and the brother know in their gut, really, that there is no way to save this 12-year-old girl. And there's no, they, they, there's no way to prevent it in their eyes. I think other writers would, you know, would, would you know, attempt, like, don't these people have any agency? Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't the writer give them any agency? Why didn't Rufo, you know, give them an out here? Is it entirely true that this 12-year-old girl is doomed? No, but that's what they think. That's what they really think. And, and this boy is channeling his parents' fears. I think it was Sontag who wrote about the river as being part of the girl. That the, the, the girl, the river is raging all around them, but, ha, but has also somehow become part of the girl. And this paragraph at the end where it talks about um, she trembles all over. Meanwhile, the crest continues rising. The rotten stuff from below speckles Thatcha's wet face. It's like it, it's, she, it's inside her. It's, it's all around her, but it's, I don't, I don't know. There's something to your point that does seem like, no, Ruth was not going to, to give them an out. This is what they believe. These are the hopes they pin on this dowry, on this cow. And this is what they think can save Thatcha. Mm-hmm. And is it really that? Can, can, that really, can that cow really save Thatcha? Or is, the, I mean, on the flip side... The fact that the cow is gone is it mean that she's totally not savable? You know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think, <laughs> and I, I think it comes down to the fact that Rufo wasn't was refusing to sort of enter, and 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 sort of make those questions less hard to answer. I think, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's maybe in part gets to you know, what makes him different than almost anybody. Juan Rulfo is the author of Es Que Somos Muy Pobres from the collection El Llano en Llamas. It appears in translation as It's Because We're So Poor by Ilan Stavans and Harold Augenbrom in the collection The Plain in Flames, published by the University of Texas Press. The essay Winter in September is by Peter Orner and appears in his memoir in essays Am I Alone Here, published by Catapult. He's the author of five other books, including Maggie Brown and Others, published by Little Brown and Company. Peter Orner holds the professorship in English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. You can write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. 
Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 